0: Shelly, you know how much I love programmatic advertising for recruitment. It saves so much time and effort in trying to figure out where I can get maximum exposure and value in advertising my jobs.
1: Yeah, for sure. It is a game changer. And you know who I love too is AppCast. They are the leading programmatic job advertising platform that helps you reach the right candidates fast.
0: Definitely. AppCast advanced targeting and real-time optimization technologies make sure that your job ads are seen by the most qualified candidate. Plus, they have a team of experts that's always there to support you and make sure you get the best results.
1: It's so true, right? AppCast has just got the nicest people on staff. They're just a pleasure to work with. And tracking your job's performance in real-time is the other big plus. Being able to see exactly what's happening, what's driving the applications, where they're coming for. And at the end of the day, it's about making hires.
0: And where else can you expand your reach across 30,000 sites? Your candidates are everywhere online with AppCast. Your jobs will be too. So check them out at appcast.io. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge.
1: And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now.
0: Bonjour and welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge. And as always, joined by my lovely co-host, Shelly. Shelly, how are you? I'm good,
1: Serge. Do you know what? We got a big drum roll here for today's show.
0: Oh, I forgot my um, drum roll. Yeah.
1: Can you do the sound effect or something? We have joining us today, I'm very pleased to say, Andrew Flowers, who is the Labor Economist with AppCast. Andrew, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show.
2: Shelly and Serge, thank you so much for having me on.
1: Andrew, let me tell you, I am a big fan. I love the work that you do. I have seen you on webinars and listened to you on other podcasts. I just love how you explain things in terms that we can absolutely connect the dots. So I'm just thrilled that you're joining us today. But before we get into that, because it's going to be great, I always wonder, how does somebody become a labor economist? Can you give us like your Twitter bio or just a little bit about who you are and how is it that you came into becoming a labor economist, but specifically in talent acquisition?
2: Thank you for that question. And a bit of personal history is I grew up in a family as the oldest of five kids that was really a working class family. We moved a lot. I moved like 20 times growing up. And the reason we moved is my dad had a lot of jobs. I saw my dad lose jobs. I saw the family struggle uh, to make ends meet. We went through two bankruptcies, foreclosure. And so grew up very aware of the labor market of jobs, of money and financial insecurity. So that led me to study economics. And when I graduated from the University of Chicago in 2008, It was right into this global financial crisis or Great Mm -hmm. Recession. I was one of the lucky ones to land a job doing what I studied, which is what so few college students get to do. I started in the research department of the Federal Reserve System out of college. And so just as this global financial crisis, Great Recession, was starting, I was working for the Federal Reserve, studying the labor market, grew interested in why at the time the U.S. and many economies were losing hundreds of thousands, millions of jobs during that recession. So that's what kind of led me to speak with actual companies, employers, recruiters during that period from 2008 to 2014. I was with the Federal Reserve. Fast forward a bit and I joined Indeed in 2017 and was there as an economist for about three years with the hiring lab where I got to get my hands on cutting edge data about clicks and postings Mm -hmm. and actual applications on the Indeed platform and, and how recruiting works, how talent acquisition leaders approach online job boards. So that was a great experience at Indeed and since then I've landed with Appcast and as the Appcast labor economist now for about a year and a half what brought me to the world of labor economics as I said is not just the you know the family story, it's not just the actual academic studies and past work experience. To me, what really brings me to AppCast and to the TA world is the exciting changes that are happening. And I'll sum this up by saying, just as I started my career in recruiting in TA, when there were tons of job losses happening and in, in a deep recession. Right now, it's the opposite in many ways, right? We've seen really strong job gains. We've seen recruiters, unlike 15 years ago, tell me, hey, it's hard to find workers. Whereas 15 years Mm. ago, the problem was there weren't many jobs to recruit for. So just seeing the world change through the lens of labor economics and to see how TA leaders have to respond over the last 15 years, that's what's really drawn me to this field.
0: I'm curious to know, what has been the biggest change in your mind looking at it as an economist from 2008 to 2023? Obviously, the supply and demand is different, but anything that's really shocked you in that time frame?
2: Yeah, the obvious answer is what you said. It's just the supply-demand dynamics. When recruiters had the ability in 2008 to just passively get plenty of desperate candidates applying for their yeah. positions because there were four, five, six unemployed people for every one unfilled job vacancy. And now you have almost two job vacancies for every one unemployed person. So it's kind of inverted. That's the obvious answer. But the other thing that's really changed is the smartphone. The iPhone was introduced in 2007. And as we talk about in the AppCast a benchmark report, we've seen a steady growth in the amount of mobile activity from job seekers. So whether that's clicks on job postings or browsing, searching job boards on their phone or applying, you know, increasingly just doing easy apply applications from their smartphone, that's been a huge change. And so with the move from kind of desktop to mobile the internet's been around and job boards have been around for 30 years or so, right? If you go back to Monster and Career Builder, but what's really changed in the last 15 years is the growth of mobile devices and how recruiters have to readjust their conception of things like resumes or the job application process. Because I'll be honest with you, a lot of us in the world have a smaller attention span <laughs> since yeah. the smartphone was introduced. I certainly do. And so job seekers are more impatient and Having your apply process tweaked so that you can fit the needs of job seekers who are probably on their phone and probably want to spend five, maybe 10 minutes at most filling out an application. That's been probably the biggest change in recruiting, I think.
0: Yeah, I think it completely correlates to the point in 2007, 2008, people were desperate for a job. So they would go through a 50 minute, two hour process. They won't anymore because they have so many options. One of the things that you pointed out there when it comes to mobile, and I think you're absolutely right, mobile has changed the game, both on the labor side, but also in buying. But when I'm meeting with employers and going through some of the Appcast data, one big surprise that comes up for everyone is, What type of employee is using mobile to both look for jobs and to apply for jobs? Because the first thing they think about is, oh, it's the tech guys. And it's actually the opposite. It's trades, it's retail. Any surprise to you when you first saw that data that people applying for mobile phones are people that would not think would
2: use mobile phones to apply? Like you, yeah. Initially, I was a little surprised. But then when you think about it, it really makes sense, right? When you split the world of job seekers into two camps, into active job seekers and passive job seekers, and you think about like active job seekers are probably inordinately more likely to be unemployed. So they're not necessarily searching for work on their current jobs time, right? And so those active job seekers are going to approach the process differently. They're willing to apply with the longer apply process. They're willing to submit resumes, cover letters. But for the passive job seekers, and in this tight, labor market where there's lots of job opportunities and a high level of employment, low level of unemployment, you're going to find more of the second camp, the passive job seekers. And those people, when you think about what they're doing at their job or outside of their work, for people who work in hourly roles, blue collar roles, think of warehousing and logistics jobs or retail jobs they had their phone on them and they're not necessarily accustomed to working on a uh, actual desktop computer. Whereas for so-called white collar roles, if you work in sales and marketing or technology, you're accustomed to a kind of desktop experience. It's probably where you do your work. So whether it's during the workday or whether it's after work, when you apply for a new position as a passive job seeker, you're probably going to do it through your desktop uh, experience. So when we see these apply rates that are really high for roles in technology and legal Positions It makes sense to me when they're very high on desktop and they're really low on mobile. But just as you said, Serge, the apply rates for positions like in warehousing and retail are much, much higher on mobile devices. And that, to me, makes intuitive sense. Either the person's on the job applying or they're accustomed to a mobile device as their kind of main point of contact with the Internet. Yeah,
0: when you think about it, it makes complete sense. So I really want to dive into your latest 2023 AppCast benchmark report, and you can find it at appcast.io, and I'll have the link in the show episodes for anyone listening. One of the key themes in this report is you do say there is no single labor market. Let's dive into like the key findings and what you mean by that.
2: Yeah. When you look at a 30,000-foot view of the labor market and the recruiting world in 2022, the first thing that jumps out to you is, wow, the job market's extremely strong for job seekers, both in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. So this strong or what economists call a tight labor market where there's just more demand to hire workers than there are job seekers, that really is the kind of defining feature when we look back in 2022. Yeah, but that mask that a lot of variation across industries. And so when we say there's no one labor market, a good example of this is the tech industry, right? We've seen how the tech industry has gone through waves of pretty high-profile layoffs. And it started in mid-2022 and it has continued into early 2023. So when you think about Microsoft and Amazon and Twitter and Meta laying off workers, that is at odds with the broad, growth in employment across the whole labor market. When you see job seekers have plenty of options and many industries like leisure and hospitality and healthcare, and manufacturing are expanding, whereas tech is the kind of outlier that's having layoffs, that gets at this notion of there's no one labor market. And it's hard to encapsulate all of the economy into just a set of statistics, right? I'm a big fan of statistics and numbers, but just think of like averages, right? Averages lie in the sense that they mask all the kind of variation across the economy. So in our benchmark report, what we wanna arm recruiters and TA leaders, HR leaders with is data, right? But data is not useful if it's just aggregated. And when we say there's no one labor market, we want to arm you with data to your specific geography and to your specific industry so that you're not looking to us and we give you answers like, here's the overall cost per application. That's useful as a baseline, but it's much more useful to know what the cost per application is to hire a registered nurse in Los Angeles or to hire a software developer in Toronto, that's more actionable. And so when we say there's no one labor market, we mean to say that the world's complex and especially coming out of this pandemic recession and fast recovery in the labor market, a lot of moving parts are happening and it's hard to keep track of all the complexity. So to have you armed as a TA leader with data at the granular level, So that you're not just looking at the overall labor market, but you're looking at your open positions that you need to recruit for and what challenges you face. That's what we mean. So if we could also
1: walk us back to some really key things that happened in 2022 that I think traditionally TA wasn't connecting the dots on. like When we saw inflation rates spike and uh, recession talk, then lo and behold, we have a strong labor market. So you were there in 08, 09. So was I. I was in the thick of it. I wasn't an economist though. What's different this time, Andrew? Like, how is it that this is happening?
2: There's a lot of confusion, and rightfully so, from the talent acquisition world, because when we saw prices rise across the globe last year, really start to spike in 2022, Mm -hmm. people think of inflation. Okay, that's bad, which is true. And they think of, well, bad news for the economy means recession. And recessions, well, historically, from 2008, 2009, or even the abrupt 2020 COVID recession, recessions typically mean layoffs. A lot of people's minds in the TA world the connection between inflation, which is bad economic news, means inevitably there's going to be maybe some layoffs. Well, it turned out to be the opposite. And I think the best analogy for the experience we're going through right now is something more like the late 1970s or the mid-1940s. And so those periods historically, whether it was demobilization from World War II or whether it was the kind of stagflation era in the 1970s after we had these oil price shocks from embargoes and wars, Those experiences in the 40s and 70s were experiences where global economies had high inflation and, at times, high-pressured labor markets. It flipped in the 1970s, eventually led to stagflation and high unemployment. But in the 1940s, an even better example, what we saw is, okay, rising prices, but also lots of labor shortages, really challenging times to recruit workers that's a better analogy for what we're going through in 2022 and 2023. So you're right that last year as inflation really surprised people and myself included for being so strong that the expectation that a recession would inevitably follow was a little misplaced because in fact, job growth continued to be very strong. And what this reflects is an economy that is frankly overheating, meaning that we're hiring workers, we're growing in terms of GDP in terms of the amount of goods and services we produce, we're growing almost more than our capacity allows. And that's what's pushing up the price pressures. People are bidding higher, whether it's for workers in terms of wages Mm. that they offer, or you're buying a washing machine or a used car or a Peloton bike or whatever. People are bidding up those goods. And so that's leading to a lot of inflation. That's how I contextualize 2022 is labor shortages and inflation can coexist. Or in other words, you can have a period of really above average prices, whereas there's no inevitable crash or recession. It's just that there's intense competition, especially for labor, because you're trying to meet those needs. There's still a lot of spending power in the economy. And to meet those needs as a business, you need workers. And so we've seen inflation, frankly, fuel a lot of the wage pressures. So for yeah. recruiters, this is a really important environment. It's nothing like 2008-2009. It's kind of the opposite. Right? 2008-2009 we saw deflation, we saw really low prices, sometimes a negative price growth, and we saw plenty of workers that you could hire. And now recruiters need to be aware of these kind of macroeconomic dynamics like inflation because it feeds into what wages they have to offer to be competitive in this labor market.
1: Well, that so sh- makes perfect sense. So when we look at tech industry, They had layoffs. The press just went bananas. That's all we heard. They even created their own website of layoffs.com. It was like we couldn't get enough.
2: I think there's a bit of, I don't know how to say the German word, but is it schadenfreude? I may have butchered that, but this notion of taking pleasure in the downfall of someone or something that had success, right? Especially since the Great Recession or the global financial crisis has kind of aided the U.S. economic landscape and really the world economic landscape. The tech layoffs are the exception to the broader tight labor market. Despite these layoff announcements, we haven't seen Unemployment insurance claims, which is a good barometer of layoffs, Tick up at all. They're extremely low at their kind of 2019 pre COVID level low. We've seen job postings come down for tech jobs, which makes sense. So you don't need to hire as many software developers if you're laying them off. But what we've seen is job postings for other non tech positions remain extremely elevated, like between 40 and 90% above where they were pre COVID. So really, tech is the exception. Now, why is that? And why is this feeling that people had of, oh, well, is this a canary in the coal mine? Is the tech Mm -hmm. layoffs the start of something else, that it's going to become contagious. Now we know as months go by, that's not really happening. Why isn't it contagious? And I think the reason is tech is very special in that for the last 15 years, a lot of tech hiring grew based on venture capital funding, which was enabled by essentially near zero interest rates. And so the big thing that happened last year in 2022 that we haven't mentioned yet is that just as inflation really took off, so did central banks begin to raise interest rates. And when credit is no longer essentially free, when it's no longer 0% interest rates, those sectors of the economy that are most focused on growth in terms of the valuation of companies, not their current unit economics, but what's their potential? What's their potential market? And in the tech sector, a lot of investors, particularly venture capital investors, saw hiring as justified, even if the unit economics weren't working for that company. To use an example, Uber. Uber's losing tons of money, but the idea was, well, we'll still hire more people, we'll still grow, we'll still invest more because you're just gonna capture this market, eventually it'll become profitable. Well, that is a fine theory for the tech world when interest rates are near zero. And when they rose dramatically last year, a lot of investors pulled back their money. A lot of tech companies realized, wait a second, we can't operate with a growth only mindset. We have to operate with some efficiency too. We have to become profitable. And that's where there became a reckoning within tech companies to start the layoffs
0: what most people don't realize is the layoffs in tech were a very small portion of what these tech companies have hired in the last two years like on average i think i saw 40 50% at meta of people they laid off they had actually hired double so it's not a complete story i do want to jump into something separate I want to talk about rising apply rates that's one of the things that caught me by surprise by reading the report but Break down why you think we're seeing more applications than we were seeing, say, in 2021.
2: Yeah, the apply rate, for those who aren't familiar in the recruiting or talent acquisition world, I think of the apply rate as the percentage of clicks on a job posting that lead to an actual application. And a lot of people are surprised to hear that around 95% of all clicks don't lead to an application. So apply rates of around 4 plus or minus 1% are what you would expect. In 2020 and 2021, we saw apply rates pretty consistently below 4%. And then that improved pretty notably last year. In 2022, we saw apply rates rise up to almost 4.5%. And so this is good in terms of the recruiting cost of your budget. As a TA leader, when you look at higher apply rates, that means that for every dollar you spend of bidding on eyeballs on job boards in terms of cost per click, that dollar is going further because more people are actually translating those clicks into applications. Last year, the labor market was really competitive. And in our benchmark report on recruitment marketing metrics, we found that the cost per click bidding was pretty stable last year. And what does that reflect? That reflects what I mentioned earlier, that it's still a tight labor market. A lot of employers want to hire, and so the bidding in terms of cost per click stabilized at a high level. It's expensive to actually bid for those eyeballs of job seekers. But what improved were the apply rates, and so, What drove apply rates, according to my analysis, is the labor force participation rate. When you look at what share of job seekers are actually actively searching for work, it correlates pretty strongly to the apply rate. Because if you have more people who are maybe lured in by this strong labor market with really high wages and plenty of job opportunities to choose from, if you have those people who were previously discouraged from looking for work, jump into the labor force and actually actively search, that'll probably improve your apply rate. Those people are disproportionately more likely to actually translate clicks into applies. So again, The correlation here is the higher the labor force participation rate, the higher the apply rate. And so last year, we saw a rise in both. We saw a pretty notable rise in particular in the prime age labor force participation rate. And so when we look at 25 to 54-year-olds, and that's not to be ageist, it's just a demographic cohort that economists and demographers look at to keep things apples to apples because of the aging of the baby boomer generation, for example. That prime age labor force participation rate rose pretty notably, almost a percentage point. And so when we have that growth in the just pool of job seekers, first of all, it kills a lot of narratives. Because if you go back to 2021, there was a lot of hand-wringing about how nobody wants to work anymore. Where are all the job seekers? And we've seen a big return in the labor supply. Now, has it gotten fully back to where we want it to in terms of the pre-COVID level? Almost not quite. And so when you see that the labor supply side of recruiting has almost recovered, but the labor demand side has just blown past its pre-COVID levels and there's just way more job openings. That's what's driving a lot of these headaches for recruiters, that imbalance. So to go back to your original question, Serge, the rising apply rate in 2022, which drove cheaper recruiting costs, which drove the decline in cost per application, that is largely, I think, explained by higher labor force participation.
0: Perfect. I do want to dig in a little bit deeper when you say 95% of applicants don't complete applications. We see from a job board or we're going to the career site, we're clicking on the apply and we're not finishing the application. Is that what you mean by that?
2: Yes. Yes.
0: You think about all the investment of people driving to a career site, either from job board investment or external marketing, there is multiple factors. Still many ATS are not mobile-friendly, even to this day. Obviously, we can talk about the length of applications, how many clicks. Like Myself and Shelly do some consulting, and we've seen some that take 160 clicks before you actually finish an application. Is that what's driving it? Just a shitty application
2: process? I think that's a big part of it. So let's take it one by one. The apply process, what you're putting your finger on, having really... Frictional, cumbersome apply systems, whether it's ATSs that aren't mobile friendly or whether it's just long, unnecessary layers of questions that you can maybe capture later down the recruiting funnel. The elongated apply process is one big explanation. I think another explanation are the job ads themselves, the actual text, the kind of pitch, because nowadays, especially when there are more job openings than there are unemployed people, you want to kind of sell your employee value proposition. You want to sell to the job applicant what's in it for them. And to do that, you want to write a sharp, crisp job ad, a posting that is intriguing for job seekers. Now, what do job seekers want? Well, one thing I think most job seekers want, and I don't think this, I actually know this because we look at survey data, is they want information about pay. And we've seen a huge revolution and it's going to continue to happen in 2023 in terms of pay transparency, whether it's mandated by certain states or certain countries, or whether it's voluntarily disclosed by a recruiter to just entice more applicants. We know from polling that job seekers care about pay. Of course, Mm -hmm. they care about culture and benefits, flexibility, but pay is a big factor in the job search. And so Our research has shown that when you do mention pay, if it's at or above market, you're gonna get more engagement. You're gonna get both more clicks if the pay is advertised in the job title, but also more applies, whether it's a salary range or a wage range, if it's mentioned in the job description itself. Writing better job descriptions with the job seeker in mind. So to just tie up this whole process into kind of one grand theory, Serge, the way I think about it is, a lot of recruiters have frankly lost the muscle memory of what it means to find job seekers, to approach job seekers in a tight labor market, meaning it's one thing if it's 2010 and there's just a lot of desperate job seekers and have a cumbersome apply process, not to mention pay or really sell the job seeker at all, you'll still get passive candidates just because that's the conditions of the macro economy. Frankly, you have to go back to the late 90s to think of a time even remotely like this where it was so competitive, where you really had to sell yourself as the recruiter to the job seeker. And that's forcing a reckoning in terms of how you write job ads how long your apply process is, and other things like the employer brand. What's your kind of values? Increasingly, especially younger job seekers care about that. They want to see that your values are aligned, whether it's with ESG, environmental, social, governance policies, or whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion. So those things matter, and again, to varying degrees, depending on the job seeker. But if I had to sum it up, it's just having the job seeker, what's in it for them, In mind when writing job ads, that'll give you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of more engagement. Amen.
1: (laughs) That was so well done. Thank you, Andrew. I do want to come back to something that I think talent acquisition is still struggling with. They're certainly very sophisticated or very senior TA people who understand the distinction between cost per click and now cost per applicant. And it is confusing because I think some of the old school TA people, those of us who were recruiting in the 90s, myself included, we were taught cost per hire, but now we're going cost per applicant. Can you help demystify that a bit? Should we be focused on cost per clicks or should we be focused on
2: cost per applicant? It's a great question. And to answer and share my perspective, I think it really is contingent on what the business model of major job boards are. Yeah. So a lot of recruiting happens through online job boards or other recruiting services that are digital in nature. So the broad ecosystem of Indeed and ZipRecruiter and LinkedIn and all the long tail of job boards. When you think of recruiting in that traditional internet space, the business model that prevails at a given time really determines your metrics. When Indeed really grew to its current success over the last 15, 20 years, With it, Rose, its business model, which was based on cost per click. And that was the key metric, because if that's what Indeed is essentially charging you for, then you would want to benchmark yourself accordingly. Well, Indeed has evolved. And... With it, so is AppCast. And a lot of AppCast business model came from this notion of, okay, rather than charging recruiters by click, why don't we actually charge them when we deliver an application? So the CPA notion, the cost per application metric became more prevalent. And what's funny, Shelly, is I think it's going to go full circle. Eventually, the technology is going to get good enough. It's already happening where we're going to track from Click to hire. We're going to be able to track whether it's through the job board, whether it's through the ATS or whether it's through the programmatic vendor like AppCast so that eventually you're right. Like just as recruiters were always taught, the key metric is cost per hire. That's ultimately what we're here to do is we're trying to hire workers. We're trying to fill butts and seats to make our organizations go. And to do that, an application is not an employee, is not a worker. And so an application <laughs> is a good benchmark. I think at the current moment, CPA, the cost for an applicant, that's the best kind of universal benchmark you can think of measuring your efficiency and job ad spending. But where we're going, where we're headed, and there's a bit of this in the benchmark report that we released last month. Gosh, actually it's this month. I can't believe it. It's gone by so fast. But earlier in February, we teased in this benchmark report how you can track from click to hire. And when you look at the actual cost per hire metrics, of course they vary by industry. So for example, cost per hire in healthcare, very high, just because Mm -hmm. it's hard to find those workers, those people with the credentials to be a nurse, for example. It's hard to hire people in transportation in terms of long haul truck drivers, for example, but it's easier. It's a lower cost per hire in other industries like food service, retail. When you look at the cost per hire metrics, which to answer your question, Shelly, is I think, ultimately where we want to go. Right now, the technology, the integration with applicant tracking systems isn't quite there. We're getting there. But when you look at the cost per hire, one of the things that stands out that I think is pretty remarkable is there's no one source that dominates in terms of providing the cheapest cost per hire across the internet. And by source, think of a major job board or recruiting service. And when I say that no one source provides the cheapest cost per hire, the best analogy I give is think of investing, right? If you can buy one stock, maybe it's Apple or Amazon. On. That's one way to invest, but you're putting all your eggs in one basket. A more kind of commonsensical approach is to you know, diversify your investment portfolio and invest in a mutual fund or an ETF or whatever. You wanna diversify your risk. The same thing applies in talent acquisition when you think about lowering your cost for hire for whatever role you're trying to hire from You want to approach multiple sources, multiple channels, multiple job boards, so that you can then maximize what your lowest cost per hire is. That ultimately, to answer your question, is where I think we need to end up is to go back to that original notion of you want to optimize for the lowest cost per hire.
0: See, Shelly, I was right. So myself and Shelly have been having this argument for three years. Yeah, for three years, especially in Canada. I'm like, talent acquisition, folks, you have to diversify from Indeed. Not a negative against Indeed, but As a practitioner, I never want to rely that my source of candidates is over 50% from one particular source. Something happens, I'm screwed. One of the things that I did notice in talking about CPA and cost per click, they're both trending down or at least stabilizing overall advertising rates from Google or any other source from 93 to, I believe, 2021. Is this a normal that it's kind of just flatlining in a way? Is it just based on the economics of what's going on?
2: To go to your point, Serge, about online advertising, if you want to think of a proxy for recruiting cost as internet advertising costs, right? Because essentially, whether it's a job ad or whether it's a a Google search engine results page and you just have an ad for your local bakery, in some sense, it's the same kind of marketplace, kind of trying to match bids from the advertisers, whether they're a bakery or whether they're a recruiter, you wanna match them to the actual eyeballs on the search engine results page, whether it's someone typing in cookies on Google or whether it's a job seeker on a job board. And that business model, just prior to the reopening of major economies in 2021, internet advertising costs were falling for a long time, for almost about a decade prior to the pandemic internet advertising costs were falling. And then they actually rose really dramatically in 2020 and then continued to throughout 2021, 2022. And I think recruiting costs, when we saw the huge upsurge in recruiting costs from 2020 into early 2022, before they stabilized and began to fall a bit last year, I think that's partly reflected by the pandemic effects of most people were experiencing ever more of their life online, right? We were either cooped yeah. up at home during lockdowns or in the subsequent period in 2021 and 2022, just became more acclimated to software tools and online experiences. When you see those advertiser eyeballs, that market share shift online, you're going to see a corresponding increase in the price. And so when we saw yeah. internet advertising prices rise after falling for a decade, and we saw recruiting cost rise after being low for a long time, it reflects the same trend, which is, A combination of two things. One, worker scarcity, right? The simple supply demand in the labor market, but also just where people are online and how they spend their time. Recruiting tactics like billboards and bus wraps and paper advertisements, they were in decline or they were stagnant even prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic really turbocharged these trends and brought forward maybe a decade worth of change or more in just a short period of time. And that's part of the reason recruiting costs, again, these are online recruiting costs be so elevated.
1: So I know the report is wholly focused on the American market. And we're like the poor second cousin to the mm-hmm. north. So from an economist perspective, do you have any insights? Do you see some parallels to the Canadian market? Or how, how does Abcast take a look at the Canadian market? Or is it just too small?
2: Appcast does look at the Canadian market. And I'm excited to say that starting in March of 2023, we're going to be having regular coverage of the Canadian labor market through mm-hmm. the website I run that's powered by Appcast called recruitonomics.com. So stay tuned for that. But when we look at the Canadian labor market, here's how I would compare it to the US. The labor demand forces that operate in both markets are pretty Mm -hmm. similar. In other words, there's been a huge surge in job postings in the U.S. and intense demand to hire workers in the U.S. And there's been a correspondingly large increase in Canada as well. In fact, actually, the Canadian demand for workers is even a bit higher when you normalize it. There's a ton of desire to hire workers in Canada. And ebb and fall of labor demand, of actual employer hiring, is pretty similar in the two markets. But where they differ more is on the supply side. And one kind of obvious example is immigration, right? Canada, when you look at the kind of demographic outlook of major economies in Europe and the US, Canada really stands out as having a bigger positive labor supply trajectory than other countries. Why is that? It's not necessarily underlying fertility rates. It's the immigration rate. And so the immigration system being more accommodating for employers in Canada allows the kind of labor supply to adjust in a different way than it would in the US. So I think I want to make that distinction between the job seeker world is more different between Canada and the US, but the employer hiring world While they're different in scale, like the U.S. is much bigger, Mm -hmm. similar in trends. So to answer your question, when we look at the Canadian market, we see rising recruiting costs in terms of cost per click. We see rising job postings, just like in the U.S. The Canadian labor market, to sum it up in one sentence, the Canadian labor market is as tight or tighter than the U.S. right now. Where we see differences is on the job seeker side in terms of whether immigration law or the natural skill base of the workforce is different between the two countries. That's how I distinguish it.
0: Isn't that a big concern in the U.S., though? Obviously, immigration is a big part of our labor strategy as a country. And in the U.S., from an external view, it doesn't look like that. But we're in a very similar position that our birth replacement rates are very low. We're going to be in a situation that we need to bring in more immigration as a boomer population, as Gen X becomes older. Do you think the U.S. looks at what's going on in the labor market and will be putting a plan together to get more immigration unless they can get more children just in the next 10 years? Change
1: child labor laws.
0: Yeah, they've done that, actually. So I I think in a state you can work 14. But is it a major concern 15, 20 years from now what's happening in the U.S.?
2: It is a major concern, it's even more of a concern in Europe and other places. China, notably, had its population decline last year for yeah. the first time in 60 years. But when I hone in on this contrast between the US and Canada, yes, demographics are a major concern for recruiters, not in the here and now, right? It doesn't change your strategy quarter to quarter, maybe not even year to year, but over the next decade, it has to have a big impact on your long-term planning. And for Canada and the U.S., you're right. The native-born fertility rates are below the replacement level that would keep a stable population, but because of net immigration, both countries, unlike Europe, are expected to at least increase in population over the next half century. Canada more so than the U.S., again, driven by the fact that there's more immigration recently in Canada than in the U.S. It's more liberal in its immigration laws, So will the U.S. adopt a Canadian immigration strategy to accommodate the challenges of recruiters? That's the big question I really think of. The jury's out because on the one hand, you've seen the business community in the U.S. become more aware of this imminent labor shortage because of demographics. And so this business community will push and it's lobbying power legislatively, it will push for more open immigration laws to get those workers in the country. The elephant in the room we have to acknowledge is the toxic politics around identity and around the immigration issue. I don't want to say it's particularly in the U.S. It's everywhere. It's every major advanced wealthy economy has an attractive pulse, a beacon for immigrants, right? And how they adapt, especially in the recruiting community to say, well, do we let immigrants in to fill our labor needs, or do we keep them out for political reasons? That kind of toxic political dynamic is not going away. And I have no crystal ball on how that plays out. What I will predict is the business community will become ever more aggressive. They already are in advocating for more open immigration laws like the ones you see in Canada.
0: Talking about crystal ball, I would love to get your thoughts or a prediction of what to expect in the labor market and the economy in 2023.
2: I will give you two predictions. One is that the U.S. economy will most likely not fall into a recession. Now, do I think that there is an elevated risk of a recession? Sure. But I think it's less than 50%. I think what we've seen, as I mentioned earlier, is that the tech layoffs are not the canary in the coal mine. They are the exception. And that the underlying strength, particularly of consumer spending, is just going to power Strong labor market. It's already at a a remarkable point. The unemployment rate in the United States at 3.4% is the lowest since before the Apollo moon landing in 1969. And so I will offer that one kind of hedge prediction, which is, again, incoming data changes, and you could talk to me in three months, and if we have deteriorating statistics on consumer spending and the housing market starts to seem like it's not just weakening, but it's going to go through a bust, then maybe you revise your recession odds upwards. Right now, my first prediction is that the U.S. will avoid a recession, at least for 2023. The second prediction I'll offer you is that pay transparency laws in the U.S. are going to really revolutionize the recruiting funnel conception. Right now, we see in the TA world this notion of, okay, like Shelley mentioned earlier, what are the metrics to track? Is it cost per click? Is it cost per application? There's this notion of the click to hire funnel, right? And that funnel is being upended because many states in the United States, led by California and New York state this year, are instituting laws requiring pay transparency. And so when you require pay transparency, not just as a option for job seekers. So for a while now, we've had laws that you could ask upon request for a salary range if you were being interviewed. What's changing in 2023 is when California and New York start enforcing these laws, later this year, one in every five people in America is gonna live in a jurisdiction that requires pay transparency, not upon request, but upfront in the job posting. That's a huge game changer. And what I mean when I say it's going to upend the recruiting funnel is our research has shown that in states that have already required pay transparency and job postings, states like Colorado, we've looked at this and we've seen that applicant volume drops. And so that's the first scary thing is that if you're a recruiter and you're operating, say, in California or New York later this year and you put a pay range, maybe it's a forklift driver, $19 to $21 an hour or maybe it says registered nurse, 60,000 to 80,000 US dollars. I'm just making those numbers up. If you put those ranges in the job posting, one of the things we find is applicant volumes typically will decline. And now if you're paying well above market and you weren't disclosing that pay before, you're probably gonna see an increase in applicants. But typically what happens is job seekers self-sort and they realize, wait a second, this is for me or it's not for me. And the recruiting funnel concept, if you're in TA, starts to change because what happens is you get fewer applicants in terms of volume, but the applicant quality rises dramatically. In other words, to go back to Shelly's question, the cost per hire may end up being cheaper in the end when you disclose pay because the people you're interviewing who have applied are already on board with the pay. And so that's a big sticking point with people when you either make an offer or they learn more about the position, they start to research it and realize it's not for them. And so it's going to change the kind of dynamics of recruiting as pay transparency really spreads. And I also predict as a sub prediction here that it will spread to more states, more states will start to enact these laws. And it's really going to change the world for TA leaders. One of our policies at Appcast is not to weigh in pro or con for legislation. What I can say, though, objectively, is it typically makes the recruiting process more efficient because of all that yeah. self sorting. But what it does is it's going to force a big change in how our habits of thinking of recruiting and thinking of the applicant funnel, is going to change that a lot.
0: Well, it's a big change in the funnel because you, you think the majority of staffing firms and even corporations, the salary is the last thing you talk about when you get to the offer stage. So now it's up front. It's a complete flip of the funnel process, right? So it will be interesting. We're seeing firsthand here in Canada, it's having a dramatic impact here as well. These are great predictions. We'll bring you back on in January next year and see if your predictions were correct. <laughs> I'm going to hold you accountable to it,
2: and I'll say I'm wrong if I was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, this was fantastic. The amount of information that you were able to provide, and I, uh, I really suggest to anyone that's listening to regularly subscribe to the Benchmark Report. And sorry, your website was again,
2: yeah, Recruitonomics.com. Perfect. So yeah, check it out.
0: If anyone wants to get a hold of you, Andrew. What's the easiest way?
2: Two ways. One, go to recruitonomics.com and sign up for our email list or just email us directly. The other way is Twitter. Also LinkedIn. But if you follow me at Andrew Flowers, just first name, last name, at Andrew Flowers on Twitter, DM me or just message me. Glad to talk. Also, LinkedIn is great too. Awesome.
0: I didn't know anyone was still on Twitter. Good job.
2: Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, while it exists for now. It's still running. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It is. Perfect. Andrew, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank
2: Thank you you so
1: much, Andrew. Andrew. Take care.
0: Shelly, let's face it. Texting candidates is the easiest way to hire quicker today. But your cell phone doesn't connect to your ATS. You're sharing your personal number with strangers. That's pretty scary, right, Shelly? And Mm. it's not even legally compliant.
1: Mm, This is where our friends at RecText come in. They've created simple yet powerful text recruiting software that works with your ATS. Plus, it's designed by recruiters for recruiters, so you know it works. To learn more and book a demo, visit www.rectxt.com, mention the Recruitment Flex, and get 10% off annual plans.
2: The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said,